0: This morning I'd like to talk about um, one of my favorite topics Um, and the title what I'd like to give the talk today is called Wrestling with Desire. Um, When the Buddha began teaching, his very first sermon um, in Sarnath was on the Four Noble Truths and they were, the Four Noble Truths are basically a prescription about life, about what the Um, what the problem is, which is suffering, which is we all suffer. Um, And that could be, you know, the just the inevitable fact that we're all going to die and we're all going to lose the people we love. And it could be just having an irritating hangnail. It could be, you know, just having something in the restaurant that you want to order that's not there you know it could be a larger disappointment you know an illness a chronic illness we're talking about the entire range of things in life you know from the great tragedies to the minor irritations and he talked about um, uh, what what's the cause and he said that the cause is craving you know craving what we like and uh, hating what we don't or trying to push it away Um, and really not seeing clearly that obtaining more pleasure and avoiding pain is really going to bring us happiness. He said that was really a delusion or a misconception of the truth. And he said there was a way of let, letting go of craving and then ultimately a path um, which is like the prescription. Um, so we have the, the statement of the problem, and we have the cause, um, and we have the, um, you know, the, what's going to cure it, and then the path, the, the prescription. Um, of the eightfold path, but where do we get stuck? You know, where do we get stuck um, uh, in trying to create happiness? Um, and basically, the the Buddha said we get caught in the second noble truth. We all suffered. We all know that. Um, uh, so the the diagnosis is pretty clear. Um, we all have our secrets and sorrows. We've all have lost people. We've all had great disappointments or grand ones. Um, we've all experienced the illness either of ourselves or our loved ones. Um, we've all experienced unexpected things. We wake up in the morning and think it's going to be a great day, and you know, bang, you get a phone call or a, something happens, and you know, your whole life gets turned upside down. So, what is it that really causes us? Pain and sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair is what the Buddha talked about. And he talked about our craving, you know, wanting what we want and not wanting what we don't, and not seeing that this is actually a delusion, as I said earlier. So, what we engage in consciously or unconsciously is what I call this wrestle with desire. You know, as as, as much as we want to believe that. Pleasure is going to bring us happiness. You know, we spend so much of our time trying to accumulate it. You know, just get the right position in our sitting from scratching an itch, from getting a new house, a new relationship, you know, blah, blah, blah. The endless variety of things. And, you know, to a certain extent, or to a large extent, you know, pleasure is terrific. You know, you get it, and, you know, there's definitely that hit. And it's, you know, there's a reason why, you know, we get caught in the illusion or the delusion that pleasure is going to bring us happiness because there is a moment when it does, you know, and how long it lasts, who knows. Um, But there is that hit which basically the whole advertising industry, you know, uh, bases itself on. and there is that relief, you know, when you, you when you scratch an itch, or when you have hunger and you get it satisfied, or when you get the job or the relationship or whatever, you know, the the cure from the illness. Um, and so we don't want to diminish that hit because that's the hook. Um, and nor do we want to diminish that when we when we are rid of what we don't like. You know, we're out of the relationship or. You know we're out of the job that we hate or the town that we're living in or um, any number of things that we we don't like um, that you know it's it's good we feel better but the Buddha asked us to consider you know how long do these pleasures of getting what we want or not get or being relieved of what we don't how long do they last and the fact and the truth is you know, things are impermanent and they don't last, so whatever pleasure we get um, is destined to evaporate. And so we spend our life in, in what, I, what, what I call a misguided wrestle, a misguided wrestle of trying to then replace what the, the other pleasure was that is now has evaporated or vanished with a new one. Or we replace trying, we, we, we've, been a, we've been irritated by something and that's over and so we find a new irritation and then we spend our time uh, involved in another misguided wrestle of trying to release that and trying to gain more pleasure and I'm not trying to be critical of, an, of us in the struggle the Buddha said this is the struggle um, and it's partially our wrestle and struggle because as I said it does work to a certain extent it does work to be relieved of anxiety or depression in the moment. you know whew. you know it does, there's, there's definitely a relief when you learn something new on the computer that's been frustrating you for a long time you think, ah you know this is it now my work life is gonna or my writing life that's gonna be it you know um, And as soon as the ants get out of my house or my neighbor who's a pain in the neck drums at three o'clock in the morning moves, you know, that's going to be great, and so we're um, you know through our misguided means, you know we continue in this struggle, and um, you know we all have our personal you know histories and stories with it, and you know the Buddha wasn't trying to criticize us for this. He was just trying to awaken us to the fact that basically no matter what we do with our pleasure and craving system. You know, we are basically still going to experience suffering because of the truth of impermanence. Is that it's it's whatever pleasures or displeasures we feel, they're going to vanish. So, um, being the great physician, the Buddha taught us what what can we do to basically uproot this system of craving that we've gotten ourselves into? What can we do to end um, this? Grasping at what's pleasurable and kind of kicking away what's not. And he has a pretty straightforward prescription of what we need to do. And, you know, on the Eightfold Path, he talks about sila, samadhi, panya. Sila being virtue, samadhi being um, meditation, and panya being the wisdom factors. And I love talking about sila, samadhi, and panya because he really sets. He really sets the stage of how we win the wrestle of desire versus how we perpetuate the wrestle in our lives. And it's interesting, in in America, in our form of Buddhism, we've kind of deemed mindfulness, you know, the ability, the natural ability to be with our experience um, as it is without judgment and without reactivity um, as, as the kind of like the number one antidote to desire or to craving, I should say, and to a large extent it is because when we're with our desires, when we're with that kind of ache in our chest, you know, for wanting something, you know, the new computer or the new program or the new piece of clothing or, you know, sex or whatever, you know, you can feel the constriction in your chest and then you can feel the release when you get it. And so being mindful of that, you know, is very helpful because it means you're not lost in the craving. And there's no question, you know, the, the Buddha actually said, mindfulness is the medicine that cures the disease of desire. My training in Asia was, you know, was exactly that. But the other training that I really got was looking at the, the paramis, the, the factors, the the systems of you know, again, mental development, um, the great perfections, as they're called in Pali, of of purifying our minds and our hearts, and what, how you become a Buddha or you, how you become an Arahant, you know, somebody completely free from the defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion, um, is that you perfect these paramis, and that once the cup is full or the oceans of these paramis are full, you become an enlightened being, and. Um, and to the extent that there's an unlimited um, ability to perfect the paramis, you either become an Arahant or a Buddha. And the first parami, you know, before mindfulness, as I said in America, mindfulness gets you know, the front seat of everything. You know? And we think, we think of Buddhism as synonymous with mindfulness. In Asia, the the emphasis is slightly different. Not that mindfulness is discredited or discriminated against, but the very, very basis of the path, on both the four in the four noble truths, and with the great perfections, is the practice of sila, which is the practice of virtue. And I every day in the monastery, every single day, with um, the lay people who come asked to take the precepts. They are not offered, they have to be asked. They have to be requested I mean. And I love that. You know, it's not that the virtues of not killing, not stealing, uh, not gossiping, lying, exaggerating, etc. Not, um, um, what am I blanking on? Toxications that uh, uh, cloud cloud the mind and Sexual. sexual misconduct. So these are, you know, the the Buddha said these are the basis. You can't, you know, it's hard to be mindful if your mind is cloudy with killing, stealing, gossiping, lying, exaggeration, intoxication, or, you know, messing around in relationships um, that, you know, basically, you know, don't have virtue in them. And for some reason as I've talked to many te- you know, dharma teachers and professionals who teach mindfulness there's a real reluctance to talk about virtue it's like somehow it's going to be seen as moralizing and that wasn't my training at all it wasn't seen as moralizing it was seen as this is going to bring the seeds of happiness when we when we plant the seeds of virtue and when we when we Plant the seeds of non-virtuous behavior, then this is going to bring the seeds of deep unhappiness and misery not just to ourselves, but to our friends and family and community in the world. And you can see this. you know when you know wars are justified, you know through morality, you know this, is, and and killing is justified. You know by good and evil. You know they're the g- bad guys, we're well the good. You know this kind of delusional thinking brings a lot of misery. Okay, and killing is justified. Okay, and torture is justified. Hurting people is justified. Stealing, you know, taking what not, what's not given is justified. Um, and it can go on and on. Um, and in the monastery you know, the, the monks and nuns, and, you know, teaching lay people, and I, you know, on the long-term basis I was there, you know, said you have to, you know, mindfulness is implicit in virtue. You have to bring mindfulness to ask, what am I doing now, you know? And even leering, you know, leering at somebody, you know, or coveting what they have in their bowl or in their kuti. You know, these are all forms of un- virtuous behavior that you have to be mindful of in order to wake up. Um, and as I said, every day these the precepts are renewed in the monastery by some a lay person requesting them, and then the monks offering them. Uh, and I've heard many Dharma teachers say, you know, people are going to run out of the hall, and you're moralizing. And what I say to everybody is, you know, I, I'm a teacher, not a preacher, and I'm just explaining what the Buddha taught and you all know from your own experience you know when you lie or exaggerate or gossip or smack the ants or You know when you're coveting somebody else's husband or wife or whatever or getting drunk um, Or even a glass of wine um, Your mind gets cloudy and you suffer Because if you lie then you worry about being caught right you really you know that you're going to be caught in the lie if you you know if if you you engage intentionally in killing something you know usually there's some kind of remorse Um, you know and it goes on and on if you get if you drink even you know one drink you can say something that you didn't mean because your your mind was clattered or you can get in an accident or you know a number of things and um, you know the Buddha wasn't fooling around I mean obviously he was he was the awakened mind. He talked, you know, from you know, an enlightened point of view, and he set sila, you know, as the basis of the path. And um, in Thailand, you're really not allowed to talk about people's outer beauty. You know, you don't say like a monk is good looking or a nun is pretty. You don't. You know, that's, that's considered very rude. You know, and just people don't do it but they talk about their inner beauty you know and where does inner beauty come from it really comes from having an established practice of sila you know the restraint that comes from just not being you know lacking in mindfulness when you uh, are engaging in any kind of behavior you know that's how restraint becomes beauty and in the monastery it's like the monks and nuns have these wings I mean, these invisible wings because they they feel, they begin to feel like you know the wings of sila and samadhi you know and their mindfulness beginning to kind of envelop the monastery because there's such a safety there you know knowing that you are protected and the the um in thailand the 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 word for um, taking the precepts is Raksa Sinha. Sinha is the five precepts. And Raksa is you're taking protection. Isn't that beautiful? So you're taking protection in the precepts because there's an expression that says, those who protect the precepts protect them, protect themselves. So it's a, you know, if you protect the precepts, then you're going to be protected by the precepts. And in the monastery where everything is so impeccable, and you really, really feel it. And you really feel it if you don't protect them. You know, your eye, you're, you're kind of, um, you know, your skin gets all flush and you get really embarrassed and you're like running around to see who you can confess to because that's one of, the, one of the things in the monastery. Um, so, um, you know, as a psychologist, I work with so many people who are miserably unhappy. You know, just miserable from depression and anxiety, and you know, uncontrollable misery, really. And when I when I encourage them to use the lens of mindfulness and really look at, you know, their um, their behavior, it's not because I'm trying to be a goody two shoes. Um, it's just because I'm taking the Buddha's instructions on what's going to plant the seed of happiness versus the seed of misery. You know, I'm just, I'm being a an arm of what the Buddha taught. It's not my idea, you know, but when I do, I know when I practice sila and I use it as my protection, I'm a lot happier. So when I work with with people who are seriously miserable um, and have that disease of misery kind of, you know, pulsing in their bodies and their minds and their hearts, you know, that's my responsibility, is to talk about that. And, um, you know, everybody has to have their own guide. But when we talk about wrestling with desire, you know, what's the antidote to the, to the unskillful wrestle of trying to always be grasping what we love and hating what we don't, as if that's going to work, and it doesn't, and we keep learning the hard way. The antidote to that wrestle is having the wrestle with becoming more beautiful um, in our virtue, you know. And, um, and I've seen, and, and you know, why do you, why do you trust teachers? You know, because you feel safe around them, that they're not going to gossip about you, they're not going to do things that are going to hurt you, they're not going to come on to you. You know, and the tremendous misery in Buddhist communities by, you know, the sexual misconduct, you know, reverberates through generations. So, you know, the beauty of a teacher that you know is trustworthy, is so, you know, the, the beauty that comes from that, and, and most of our eyes, I would say, without hearing from every one of you, is far more beautiful than someone's physical beauty. So um, the other foundation of the wrestle, um, in, the, in the parami system, in, in the, um, the great perfection system, before mindfulness, is dana, generosity and the buddha said you know generosity is a form of letting go that's what you have to do if you want to give my wa- give this water or give the clock or whatever you have and it's mine you have to let go of it and the buddha said that that generosity and dana the whole center here is run dana no fees no you've got to pay this and here's your you know bill and your receipt that giving things away you know um Physically, mentally, materially, you know, uh, emotionally, giving things away, you know, is a form of happiness. And it's an antidote, it's another form of wrestle. And it's not easy. You know, if you have something you really love, uh, the Buddha didn't say you have to give it away. And, you know, that's an, maybe unskillful if you think, oh, I love this new sweater and I've got to give it away. That's not the idea. But the idea is we all know people who are like emotionally cheap. You know? They're just, they're very constricted. They don't want to say anything that's kind of generous and good, you know. And we all have such heartaches. Our parents didn't mirror us, or you see, you know. In my practice, you know, with especially with children and anxiety, you know, the, you know, I see that the parents, uh, that kids get very anxious because the parents are busy, you know, being emotionally critical but not emotionally generous in a lot of ways, and so the child becomes that way, and there's like an anxiety that builds. So what is it, you know, the question is, and I don't know the answers for each of you, what is it like to be emotionally generous? And what is it like to be physically generous? Being there when someone's in grief or mourning or ill or going out of your way to pick somebody up. And I know at the center, and I, you know, because Gil's my teacher as well and has been for so long, you know, I'm so, um, really so pleased that he's created this very intimate sangha because you know, there's there's, there's there's helpers in the center if you need someone to take you to the doctor, if you need a meal when you're sick, you know, that, that people volunteer their time to help other people. And this is a beautiful form of dana. You know, it's not writing a check, which is also why we're here. Many people wrote checks. Um, but just being able to be there for people and how much it's hurt us, you know, when, when people haven't been there for us. You know, when we're lonely in our our grief, or depression, or illness, and you know, we wish somebody would just pick up the phone and call, or come over with a bag of groceries, you know. That's a beautiful form of dana. And so we have, you know, dana and sila, and the uh, the third parame, the the third perfection is patience. This is all before mindfulness. This is all before mindfulness. And again, you know, that's one of the shocking things when I came back and I certainly was trained in this country for a long time, but the balance of training in Thailand was so different because, you know, mindful, 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 mindful. Um, and in Thailand it was really, you know, sila, dana, and then the third really is patience, otan, kanti, those are the two words. And a lot of times it would be like a billion degrees, slightly exaggerating, a billion a felt like it, Bugs, you know, um, um, boredom, hunger, whatever you're going through. You eat only one meal a day at 8.30 in the morning. Um, um, for me, tremendous language stress. I had to learn Thai. <coughs> but as a lot of my friends joke to me, i speak Thai with a New York Jewish accent. <laughs> <coughs> Thai has five tones. And... uh You can know the vocabulary, which I do. I have an enormous vocabulary. But if you don't get the tone right, you know, people just stare at you, and it was just so frustrating because, you know, who knows what I was asking people or telling people? (laughs) Um, You know, being the first in the first monastery, being the only woman, the second monastery, being the only you know um, Westerner—endless frustrations and difficulties, and wishing it was cooler, wishing it was this, wishing I didn't take up at three. In the morning, wishing there was this that, um, and my teachers would say to me, Ottan or kanti, patience, just patient endurance." You know, knowing it's going to change, um, and that was so helpful. I'd be, you know, I'd be like lugging myself around the monastery, and I hear, you know, "Kunrana kanti kanti." You know, it's sort of a reminder of just, you know, break, you know, the wrestle of just kind of like saying, "Yeah, this it's going to change at some time." And using that reminder of patience, it's going to change. And so are good things. You know, you're eating a wonderful meal, you're fine, a Westerner shows up, and oh, you're so happy to have a conversation. It's going to end, you know. <laughs> so, you know, patience with just wishing it wasn't going to end. You know, there's endless applications of patience. And that's something, it's very hard to learn in our culture. It's very hard to learn because our training, you know, our conditioning is so impatient. You know, we want it, we want it now. I'm driving, I want to get here sooner, you know. It's like, there's always this kind of leaning forward, you know, towards what we want and this leaning backwards of what we don't want and the belief that we're going to get it right. And, you know, living in Asia, kind of like, there is this understanding that we can't get it right, you know, we just, we can't get it right, unless we're enlightened, then we get it right, you know, then it's, then we're we're not stuck in the delusion that getting it right is really, you know, anything special, because the enlightened person, um, the difference between the enlightened person and us is that they're, you know, they've wrestled their desires, their cravings, and they just live in the river of impermanence. And the Buddha said the highest form of happiness is peace of mind, it's not acquiring or it's not being in the constant state of bliss, it's really peace of mind. And so, you know, these are some of the, um, the ingredients of the skillful wrestle. Uh, It's not just being mindful, because in in, in, in mindfulness is is what the the Buddha said, don't get me wrong, it's the medicine that cures the disease of desire, disease of craving. Um, And so we have to be mindful in order to have patience, and we have to be mindful in order to have virtue, we have to be mindful in order to give freely, you know, give dana. Um, And in mindfulness itself, the exact experience of it, is if you're mindful of craving, you're not craving. Because you can't be craving and mindful of it at once; it's they're mutually exclusive. And there's just a story I love because, you know, when we when we're craving, our our lens, our lens just, you know, it's it it just squeezes. You know, all we want is what we want, and all you know, or not want. And it's kind of you know, you realize how shameless the mind is. And it's so wonderful when we bring mindfulness to it because it it opens that lens. But speaking of lenses, I don't have my glasses, which I feel a thousand years old here, so. Let me see if I have a pair. I I have this theory that um, the more glasses you have, the more you lose. So every time I go to Costco, I buy, they come in packs of three, and I now have 12 pair, and I never seem to have them. Anyway. Here's uh, an example of somebody not wrestling with desire here, or wrestling in an unskillful way. I hope I can find it. Excuse me for not... I did thought I'd memorize this, but I'm... So Nasruddin is a legendary character in Turkish folklore. He is often used to illustrate the antics of the human mind because he can be clever, silly and mystical all at once. Nasruddin and a friend once went to a restaurant and decided to share a plate of eggplant. They argued fiercely as to whether the eggplant should be stuffed or fried. Each was attached to his desire about the best way to prepare and enjoy the eggplant. Tired and hungry, Nasruddin yielded to his friend's wish to order it stuffed. His companion suddenly collapsed off his chair and onto the floor. Nasruddin jumped out of his seat. Are you going for a doctor? asked someone at the next table. No, you fool, shouted Nasruddin. I'm going to see whether it's too late to change the order.
1: <laughs>
0: so there's somebody lost in an unskillful, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, wrestle with desire because he's so, you know, the lens is, is closed and squeezed to the extent that all he wants is to get it. And so, you know, I don't know what the, the skillful response for each of us would be, you know, to, you know, engage in what, you know, Sila, Samadhi, Panya, whatever, um, or, you know, Patience, or or Dana, uh, Donna, uh would be for each of us but we know that the wrestle might be okay that's the impulse to change the order so the mindfulness comes there you know that's the impulse of Nasruddin could be the skillful wrestle of even though I want you know, to change the order you know mindfulness sees it but what's the next skillful action you know that's where Sila, you know comes in or you know graciousness and generosity comes in you know, those, that, those, those are some of the skills that help the wrestle. Because it's not that you have to be excited, you know, about um, wrestling with desire and saying, you know, but if you want to be happy, the Buddha said, or if you want to, you know, be beautiful, of inner, inner beauty, you know, if you want to really uproot the, the, the cause of misery, if you really want to uproot it and completely abandon it, you know, then this is the path we take. And it's not that some days you just you know don't want to engage in juicy gossip. It's not like you have a halo around your head, but you you know you you use you exercise restraint because it's these are this is an unbeautiful behavior, and the seed planted from unbeautiful behavior you know are unbeautiful outcomes. People don't trust you as much. You know, and, and oftentimes people ask me about you know having one drink. Like you know, what's wrong with that? You know, you know the Buddha didn't talk about you know just having you know one drink. you know he talked about the restraint from anything intoxicating you know that would cloud the mind, and this is not sexy in our American culture, you know where we think you know just having a drink, what's that? I'm not an alcoholic, I'm not a drunk you know um and I don't know the answer for each of you. I really don't. I just know for me you know i if I had um, a drink now, I would be. You know, completely out of it. I'd be so woozy because I just I don't drink. You know, so you know I think if you drink and you have a drink, um, then you you know you have the feeling that it's not affecting you. But if you don't drink at all, I once had a um, somebody ordered me a uh, what's it, um, like a Pellegrina with bitters. I don't even know what bitters are, but I said okay, bitters doesn't sound like whiskey, doesn't sound like wine, but it has like a tiny tiny percent of alcohol in it, and I drank it. I was like whoa. I said, does this have alcohol? And the, the guy says, yeah, like, you know, zero, 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 you know, point one. And I said, you know, it really is amazing when you, you know, when you're meditating and you don't have anything to drink. Um, you know, just even, like, cough medicine could make you kind of woozy, which is why it's so popular in pri- prison. <laughs> um, and I'm not trying to say, aren't I great? I don't have a drink of wine. I'm just trying to help you reflect on, you know, what are the possible seeds of um of unbeautiful behavior and unskillful behavior and encourage you to wrestle with it. And as I said, I'm not a, I'm a teacher, not a preacher. I'm not saying that, you know, your one glass of wine is ruining your path of purification, uh, at all. At all. I don't know. I'm not a Buddha. You know, I'm not an Arahant. I have no idea. But I'm just, i all these things are always open for consideration and reflection. Um, and I'm just uh, a purveyor of what the Buddha said, um, having you know have my own set of defilements, of my own issues I'm wrestling with. Um, and sometimes, you know, we need you know we don't just need wings to wrestle. We don't just need wings, but we really need muscle. You know, we really have to make a conscious effort, you know, to give or to avoid um, stealing. You know, in, in metaphorical stealing—not that you're going to go to Walgreens and, and you know and nip a toothbrush or something—but in the sense of you know, you know, envying somebody is a form of stealing. you know, wanting something, you know, from that person is a form of stealing. So you can you know think about your own metaphors to all these things. Sometimes you really have to work hard to apply the antidote, you know, to the to you know another kind of wrestle, um, and somehow again that's not very popular in our American system, it's supposed to be easy. And, you know, in my teachers, nobody said it was easy. Nobody, you know, that you know, sitting at the feet of a great being, you know, um, you know it takes lifetimes to purify the mind and heart and to swim against the tide of defilements. You know, so we have to learn the ante- you know, antidote wrestle and some of it's gentle and some of it's quite you know some of it really does require a muscle we just don't want to do something you know we we give in to the pleasure and we give in to it many many times but hopefully with applied and reapplied mindfulness you know to eating to depression to sexuality to whatever the you know the painful thing that's causing that compulsion that Nance you know really you know hits on the, you know, hits on the head, you know, get out of my way, I just want this, you know. Um, you know, those of us who've been in universities, you know, around people, you know, trying to get promoted, it's just, you know, the kind of shamelessness, not just, a, you know, wanting something, but you know, what we'll do to get what we want. It's, it's quite humbling, and we've all been there, you know, we've all been in Nasruddin's shoes, it's not like we're just talking about some ancient mystic um, when that lens of, um, of craving narrows and that's all we can see you know, there's that famous expression when a pickpocket sees a, a saint all he sees is his pockets the saint's pockets so we've all been there so I just want to um, say that you know, there's, a, there's, an un, there's unskillful wrestles and there's skillful wrestles and I just really want to encourage you to think about um, in the in the barami system in the in the systems of great perfection you know the first is sila uh, uh excuse me dana generosity the second is sila the third is patience and the fourth is uh the fourth is mindfulness okay and it keeps going on up to great effort and concentration i mean there there's there's others faith um, there's others but in t- talking about making the baby steps you know these aren't these aren't just words they're you know they're the the wisdom of the buddha telling us what's going to unlock us from craving and really bring the highest form of happiness which is peace of mind so i leave you with these considerations thank you are there any questions yes your name uh.
1: My name is John. Uh, What is the difference between um, uh, bliss and having peace of mind?
0: (laughs) That's a good question. Um, Not having total peace of mind. I'll just take a stab at it. Um, Peace of mind is the state of mind where no matter what's arising or passing away, you're content. That you're not in the position of moving forward or away." Okay, there's, there's contentment with whatever, or the, the sea of experience as it goes by is just experienced as it is. With bliss you can say it's a very high form of pleasure where the tendency is to crave more and more of it because it's so pleasant. And the, the undiluted person doesn't see pleasant as pleasant. They do see, the unpleasantness that comes with bliss because it's going to end. So, that's, that's how the undiluted mind sees. You know, there's going to be pleasure in pain because the pain's going to end because of impermanence. So there's, that's the end of the delusion when you really, really know that bliss is going to turn into pain and pain is going to turn into bliss. So you're not moving forward or backwards from any of those states. You're content with whatever it is because there's no movement it's the movement the craving and the lack of seeing clearly that causes the suffering
1: I'm Frank, Hi, Frank. Um, uh, I have a question about the the first precept and not killing mm-hmm. I, I I think it's really hard. There's so many issues around it. Uh, Leather, clothes, uh, being vegetarian or not, ants in the house, fleas, mosquitoes, that kind of thing. Um, I just wondered how they practice it in in Thailand and then how you bring that back here. What do you do about ants is a good question.
0: (laughs) I, when I was in Thailand every day I swept my kuti, my meditation hut, uh, you know, which was loaded with ants, um, out the door, happily, <laughs> um, because, you, you know, there's certain actions that you take um, knowing that, you know, I wasn't going intention necessarily intentionally you know, stomping them out. But in terms of the cleanliness routine in my kuti, or the kitchen, or the sidewalks, you know, we're talking about the intention of deliberately you know, smashing down you know, a sentient being. And you know, it's very beautiful in Thailand, if you're in the meditation hall and you know, there's an ant crawling, you know, somebody might just put a piece of paper under it and walk it out of the hall. I mean, there's some very beautiful actions of you know, being extremely exacting in the, in the precept of not killing. Um, you know, I, you know, I am a vegetarian. I do, I do have kosher chicken every once in a while. But um, uh, these are all personal. You know, these are all personal questions that I, I can't answer about leather and um, things like that. But I, I will tell you this wonderful story. It's a famous story about Ajahn Chop talking about skillful reflection, because you know, there's really no right answer. I don't, I don't know whether it, there's. A monk cannot eat something that's been deliberately killed for him. But if it's been killed, if the chicken's just been killed and somebody serves it, the monk can eat it. But if there's an intention to kill it for the monk, can't eat it. So, again, there's discriminating wisdom here. You know, if, you know, rats are infest, infesting your house, you know, there's discriminating wisdom. Can you live without disease? Or if you're going to get disease, you've got to exterminate. I mean, these are all discriminating questions. But there's a wonderful story. I heard it from Ajahn, Ajahn Samedo when I was interviewing him for The Inquiring Mind, and he talked about, um, but when Wat Nompopong, which is Ajahn Chah's, uh, uh, first forest monastery in Thailand. Now there, and that, that's the original, uh, that's the home monastery. Now there's like 300 um, branches of Ajahn Chah's monastery, including Bayagiri in Northern California. At that time, there's only one, and that was Achan Chah's monastery. And um, it was completely infected by these huge ants, one rainy season. And I've spent a rainy season in Thailand, and there's tons and tons and tons and tons of bugs, which is why the Buddha said you have to stay put during the rainy season in one monastery, because you limit the amount of creatures that you kill. And they're just like they're just like multiplying before your eyes. It's a bit of a nightmare for. <laughs> unless you're used to it which I never did get used to but <laughs> um, anyway Ajahn Samedo said that the Wat Nongkofan was just filled with these ants they would like fall off the ceiling when you were eating and they'd like get into your you know mats on the floor and all over the bathroom I mean he said it was just unbelievable um, you know they were just floating practically in the air and going down your robe and <laughs> you know very difficult to live with and Ajahn Chah called in the Thai army to exterminate. And uh, Ajahn, Ajahn Samedo went up and said like, you know, wait a minute, you know, Tan uh, Ajahn, respected teacher, or what about, you know, I undertake the training precept, you know, not to uh, take any life. And he said, okay, then the Thai army will skip your kuti. <laughs> So he was very humbled and of course the Thai army did get his kuti and you know this is a skillful means you know so in other words none of these things are rock solid they they, they come from discriminating wisdom and nobody could really tell you that's why when you're with a really good Dharma master um, you know they try to give you the conditions of what's going to create happiness but you're really not you know, told this is what's going to do it for your particular situation, because how would you know? Even how would the Dharma Master know? You, don't, you know, he he or she may not know your you know entire situation. So you know, these are the guidelines that we live by. But I love that story about Ajahn Chah because you know he was probably the greatest meditation master in the 20th century, and he called in the Thai army to exterminate his wife You know, so does that answer your question? (laughs) (laughs) I think the key is not to use, you know, to really be mindful of our our justifications for what we do, you know, things like that.
1: Uh, Yeah, I have a a quick, uh, I went went talking to a Tibetan Lama and I asked him a similar question. I said, you know, I, I worry about this first precept and uh but I don't want my cat to suffer from fleas, so I put this yeah. stuff on her and it kills the fleas and I said, Is there a karmic price to that? Is that killing and he said yes, but it was mitigated by my my motivation to protect my cat. Yeah, good. It was a complexity to it. Yeah.
0: But I, I heard yes, I mean it's true, your intention was skillful. Um, and that is the root of karma is intention. Um, so to the, that's where mindfulness wakes us up and it, it, it allows us to see is our intention skillful or not because unskillful intentions are going to plant the seed of unhappiness. But um, I urge us all not to get caught up in the minutia of the, the precepts. really to look at it in the, in the larger scheme of, of lying and stealing and exaggerating and falsehoods and you know, really contemplate it on a larger scale. Um, I mean not that the smaller scale isn't isn't worthwhile, but don't get stuck in that. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Hi, my name is Pat and My question is, how do you rest peacefully with unhappiness? How do you rest skillfully with Mm -hmm. unhappiness if peace of mind is being with both states? Right. Um, To be aware of uh, mindfulness, to be aware of unhappiness, to mindfulness is, is knowing that that's true right now and asking yourself, you know, where is unhappiness in my body or what thoughts in my mind? you know, are giving me this interpretation of unhappiness. And just the knowing completely eliminates the craving for it to go away. Just the knowing. Because the knowing is your life raft. When you're just sunk into the experience of unhappiness without being mindful of it, you know, you're, you're enveloped by it. But when you're mindful of it, it gives you that awareness the healing power of that awareness really takes you out of the hole of it, the darkness of it, and says, Oh, that's unhappiness. And when you say that's unhappiness, that that movement like this and like this, you know, wanting happiness and not wanting unhappiness, just knowing it helps you rest. Right here. And you have to do, you know, mindfulness isn't just a one-shot deal, but over and over and over when you see unhappiness arising, the wisdom also arises that it's not going to last, and that what we call, label, quote, unhappiness, <coughs> is are thoughts in our mind and feelings in our body. And when we connect with those experiences and see that they're made up of many impermanent Phrases and feelings, then we're less connected to that experience. And when we're less connected, we allow it to rise and pass away. But craving kind of holds it. That's the rest, that's the that's the unskillful wrestle, and we hate it. We're actually wrestling. You know, we have it in that kind of lockjaw, you know, position. Where the, you know your hand is, you know, down there and you can't move it when you're aware of it it kind of loosens it up so the awareness is you don't pay attention to the specifics of what it is that you see as the happiness the unhappiness coming from i mean you don't pay attention to why you're unhappy you just not at all yeah it's just the here and now the story is endless <laughs> There's no beginning, no end to it. It's it's the it's the nature of samsara stories, Anwar. Any other questions?
1: Yes. But it seems to me that you could look at why you're unhappy from the viewpoint of dependent origination, mm-hmm. and if you look at all those, perhaps many minute causes that lead up to this feeling that's in your body you start to see that um, oh uh, this stuff isn't so important but they're just making me feel this way
0: yeah that's a very good point thank you for making it there are skillful reflections you know regarding you know Sila and Donna and things like that there are skillful reflections of and those whys are a lot more productive you know uh, than the story of my particular personal unhappiness and where it came from, but it's more like, because those are maybe out of your control, but when you're looking at skillful means in terms of redefining a story, you know, you look at things that you can practice and perfect in that sense, those are more, those are more skillful than the why of the story. Which is very seductive, you know because we can all convince ourselves of why we're so you know ghastly or unhappy, <laughs> but it's not going to get us anywhere in terms of really developing the heart of contentment. So skillful reflection is an excellent uh, um, way of doing that of what you just said of. If we really look back, and we and we really make an effort to see, you know, was I really on the mark in terms of my um, applying, um, not gossiping, you know, not taking what was given, you know, that's a very helpful reason to understand why I'm so unhappy now. Any other questions? I don't have a question. I just wanted to thank you so much for your talk today and for your wisdom. Oh, thank you. It was very wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Rebecca, do you have a question? Uh,
1: Mm. Well, I was just pondering what you said, Rana, about um, the... Understanding the wise mm-hmm. and how we can get lost in our story, and I was thinking about how this applies to um, so the sort of Western psychotherapy uh, tradition uh, where understanding our background and conditions um, and conditioning uh, is often seen as a path to awakening and increased awareness so I was wondering how you um, negotiate that that tradition
0: with the Eastern Um, understanding your story is not going to liberate you from happiness you know that that's my definition it's it may help you put the puzzle pieces together Um, but in terms of liberation from suffering the complete eradication of the defilements of greed hatred and delusion in the mind the exact storyline isn't going to get you there it could get you to a lower level of understanding but you can't get there without you know virtue you know no matter how many times you tell the story and understand it if you're still practicing unskillful behaviors you know you may be more understanding about your background but still sowing the seeds of unhappiness if you're still a che- an emotional cheapskate or a financial cheapskate Great, you understand your story, <laughs> but you're not going to be freed from, from greed, hatred, and delusion. So, and if you're not mindful of what you're doing now, you're just sowing the seeds of suffering in the future. Hopefully, you know, the great insight is, you know, compassion. You know, when you look back at your story, you realize, you know, there's really no villains and there's really no victims, you know, that you know, kind of, we're all in this mess together. And that's a very liberating insight, you know, after you go through your story for the ten millionth time. <laughs> um, but it doesn't stand alone as the path that the Buddha laid out does. Is that, is that helpful? I know there's lots of disagreements. I'm just taking a very orthodox point of view. And I'm a psychologist, so obviously, you know, I spend a lot of time with other people's stories and my stories, and they're not useless. You know, it's not useless. I'm just saying, you know, you, in terms of the greater path to liberation, you have to put the story in its place. And a lot of times the story, when you first start meditating, takes over. And that's okay, you know, that's your story, that's the conditioning. And just to see it over and over and over again, you know, at some point, you know, after 30 years of <laughs> looking at it you know it just it loses its momentum and it, that's a great experience and, and you know it's just you see the truth of impermanence it doesn't have to live with you forever and it kind of just like it, it sheds away like a snake skin um, and there's room for compassion and loving kindness and all these other qualities so It's a very difficult stage of meditation, actually, when your story is just, you know, it's just going on, 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 on. And mindfulness is the only raft, really, at that point. Just see, you know, just the, you know, how we've been poisoned by a story. It's just a story. You know, Joseph Goldstein has this wonderful thing. He says, pretend somebody, the, the person behind you, that you have his or her story. Yeah, we wouldn't be so interested in it. You know, or the person in front of you, we wouldn't grab us so much. We just see it's a story, you know, or sometimes you hear someone's story, it's like, oh, can't they, you know, isn't that ridiculous, they're so wrapped up in that story, but it's not your story, it's their story, and the and the hooks are in there, it's a story, and all of our stories are, you know, are very sad, you know, everybody's story is sad, and there's secrets and there's sorrows, as I said earlier, and there's heartaches, and, you know, every, stories are sad, but you just fill in the blanks. And this is the human condition. Yes. You have any recommended reading regarding
1: overcoming the unhappiness of <laughs> I mean,
0: books or like really really uh-huh. Well before reading I would say pra- practising is the book. You know, is um you could read till Kingdom Comes, you know, it's and that's really not gonna do it. You know, people say they have a bedside table, you know, that's like the Tower of Babel of Dharma books. So what? You know? Um, what the Buddha Taught is a book that I really like. And The Experience of Insight is another book I like. But no, no, in, this is not an intellectual path it's really a path of the heart you know and how how to liberate it any other questions so we'll just end with a brief loving-kindness meditation please just taking a comfortable seat and turning your attention inwards to your Personal uh, secrets and sorrows, and things that you're wrestling with, and wish were different, or wish you can have more of. You know, the things you know that, that constricts your heart, wanting more of something. What is that thing? And wanting less, or to get rid of something else. You know what is that thing? And acknowledging that just bringing some mindfulness to it, just knowing that you're in the wrestle, is very liberating. And and mindfulness is a real form of generosity, of dana, Because you're giving the moment its full due. It's really just seeing what's going on. And in that sense the wrestle stops for that moment. And it's also just being generous to the breath and to the body because your mindfulness is in the body. And so just take a moment to appreciate that you are in the process of unwrapping that or releasing that, that grip by just knowing what it is in your particular situation. and then just generously breathe into it. And really just saturate the moment with a fullness of breath and awareness. But this is it, this is all we have right now, the thoughts of the past are the past. You might have a thought of the past and the present, or thought of the future and the present, but this is it. So can we be generous to our secrets and sorrows? Just knowing them. And then in Thailand there is this word, Aritan, which is a spiritual determination that you make to yourselves and I encourage you to make a spiritual determination or Aritan to become more beautiful by really examining the role of virtue in your life. How you are really going to, quote, clean up your act. in terms of really examining sexuality in your life and intoxicating drinks and drugs, speech, exaggeration, gossip, you know, lack of attribution, you know, the forms of stealing or killing that we make, Engage in and working with people who are overeaters, for example, that you often kill your emotions. You can, it doesn't have to be killing ants or rats or whatever. You know, what's the rat that's your emotion that you're trying to kill? And really make an aritan to be aware. and moving away from so much the literal to a deeper understanding of virtue. Even intoxicating the mind, how we get intoxicated by a new pair of boots or intoxicated by you know, the thought of a summer vacation. are intoxicated by the eggplant, like in Nasruddin's story. We don't have to be simplistic in our virtue. Actually, virtue is very sophisticated. So make an aditan to widen your lens in your life, to affirm the life of your emotions, and you know, what, to really see in terms of not stealing. The way you really work with that is seeing the greedy mind. Not stealing someone's car, not that you're going to take a, a key and unlock it and drive it off, but you know, wishing it was yours instead of somebody else's, and on and on. You know, you can contemplate this yourself. And just continuing to breathe into the body into these determinations to acknowledge secrets and sorrows. And spread that degree of contentment that you have to everybody in this room while making that similar effort to friends and family near and far away. To the young and the old, rich and poor. The Buddha said, Everybody's blood is red, everybody's tears are salty. To all beings everywhere, everybody's blood is red, everybody's tears are salty. bring the heart of generosity to that truth. So may all beings be liberated from suffering. May all beings be liberated from the wrestle of desire and craving.